Hi everyone. My name's Emily von Moga from NH Architecture. I'd just like to thank everyone for coming to our Sermo event. Um, we acknowledge the Yulikut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yulikut Willem are part of the Boon Wurrun, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. So Sermo, which in Latin means the word, is a free event that NH Architecture run two or three times a year. Uh, founded upon NH, um, NH's core principles of collaboration and open debate, every talk is focused on a different topic relating to the architectural and design industry. Um, so cities have, have the capacity of providing something for everybody only because and only when they are created by everybody. Today we are looking at this idea and discussing how can design promote social cohesion in a rapidly expanding city. I'll now pass on to Alison Witten, uh, who is the Operations Coordinator for Resilient Melbourne, who will be chairing the discussion today. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> Thank you, Emily, and thank you to NH Architecture for this opportunity to participate in this CERMO event. And to all the speakers who are joining me here today, I'll be turning it over to you soon because I think that's who we really want to hear from. Um, but before we start, I just wanted to provide a bit of background on Resilient Melbourne. Um, we're part of a global network called 100 Resilient Cities, which was started by the Rockefeller Foundation and really looks to address um, pressing challenges that are facing cities in the 21st century, um, especially driven by challenges related to urbanization, climate change, and globalization. So we're fortunate to have a really strong presence here in Melbourne, um, where we are looking at how we can strengthen the ability of communities, institutions, businesses, systems, and others within urban environments largely to adapt, survive, and thrive in the face of shocks and stresses that they may encounter. And it's especially that interplay between the shocks and stresses that we find especially compelling in what we do, and that I think speaks to some of the challenges that we're trying to address in particular projects that we have on the ground. So this is especially timely because we've just launched a, pro a project called Resilient Communities that seeks to test models for community participation in development processes. And there's a big question around what that's going to look like once we actually hit the ground with these pilots, but I'm hoping that today's discussion can really start to uh, bring up some of the challenges and opportunities that we have in testing these processes around what is a community in this, in this case and um, what opportunities do we have, again, to really bring them into decision-making in the development process. So I will now um, turn it over to our participants to um, really speak to a few questions and, and then we will open it up to questions and conversation at the end of the discussion. So our speakers here today include Jocelyn Chu, uh, Manager of Campus Design, Quality and Planning at Monash University. And then on the far end is David Ritter, uh, Associate Director of Alitalier 10. Uh, then next to him is Chris Robinson, co-founder of Kapir Consulting, and beside me is James Tutton, director of NeoMetro. So just before we start, a round of applause for all of our uh, speakers today. Great. 
Um, so I'd like to open it up with a question um, pretty broadly, um, asking each speaker to present, uh, to introduce yourself, and then to give us an example of something your business or organization has done to engage with the community on a recent project. And I think part of that is actually then defining the community um, as it was involved in that project. So we'll share microphones, I'll pass these down, and perhaps we can start with uh, David at the far end. Thanks, Alison. Thank you for having me here today. Um, my experience is pretty varied. I uh, originally started off in the UK. I trained as an architect and worked for um, a number of different consultancies, but mainly in ESD consulting, it's called here, so sustainable design consulting. Um, and I worked for a big uh, developer in the UK, um, sorry, a big um, multidisciplinary practice in the UK building design partnership. And we would often engage with uh, communities on big master plan developments, education uh, projects. And my experience there was, was typically of um, uh, sort of drop-in type engagement events, uh, engaging with communities early in the uh, sort of master planning phases, uh, eliciting their kind of ideas, their vision for the community, and working those uh, into the, the master plan. Schools was always a, a very fun one to do. The kids are really, really uh, enthusiastic, the, the most enthusiastic participants when it comes to thinking about sustainable design, uh, which was really enjoyable. Then, um, after sort of 10 years, I, I went to work in China. I went to work for a real estate developer in China as um, sort of technical director, helping to bring very advanced uh, standards off across from Europe to China in their housing industry. Now, uh, sort of public engagement in China is very different. Uh, it, it's, it's not done so much on a big scale when there are big developments taking place, but it was very interesting to see how this uh, commercial developer actually engaged with their future uh, customer base for their, for their projects. And so they would educate them um, really well in terms of how well their new homes would perform, how sustainable they would be, the health and well-being benefits. Admittedly, there are you know, some greater needs to uh, deliver some of those benefits. Things like air quality are poor. Um, traditionally, buildings are very uncomfortable. But it was, it was actually really interesting to see how the private developer uh, engaged with their future audience. And then lastly, I'd say that Atelier 10 generally uh, globally we, we tend to get involved with the professional community. So we are um, consulting with uh, groups such as ERA um, here in Australia, thinking about resilience of buildings and systems in terms of uh, HVAC systems, heating, ventilating, air conditioning, how resilient they are to climate change, the shocks and stresses, uh, and consulting very widely um, there. And we've done work in, in New York after some of the hurricanes and events that have taken place there, uh, looking at the resilience of social housing um, and how you can improve uh, the, the, the quality of the environment in the event that um, power goes down and how well you can maintain sort of comfort and um, uh, spaces that will, um, you know, be comfortable for the elderly and the vulnerable and those kind of things. So we've done some studies and analyses uh, and helped to shift kind of standards forward in terms of what's offered uh, in the market and uh, in, in building standards. And that's, I think, a summary of the kind of varied activities that we would uh, be involved in in this space. 
should keep going. Go ahead, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Chris Robinson is my name. Um, happy, happy lunchtime on a lovely spring day in Melbourne. Um, my bio says that I'm um, a town planner, scientist and urban designer. It says I'm a father and a very ordinary surfer, which are all very true. Um, but the call to, I think, action for our practice, which is now 10 years old, Kapir Consulting Group, has that we design and deliver and report on uh, engagement projects, engagement programs for some of Victoria's, if not Australia's, most controversial projects, many of which you've heard some of, uh, East-West Link, whether it be master plans on Queen Victoria Market, whether it be master plans on the Royal Botanic Gardens, whether it be development projects, whether it be road or rail or tunnel projects. We've had an involvement because that's the nature of our project, uh, our company. We only do community and stakeholder engagement on complex projects, but they're also very small projects sometimes for not-for-profits or Aboriginal communities. So I'm really happy to share with you what I can, what I'm allowed to, about our projects and our experiences over today. Um, but I would encourage us all to think really hard about what we want about at our cities and how consultation and engagement can hold us all to account and hold our governments to account, and hold our projects to account. And, and I think that's a really important task for us as a civil society. So I'm happy to have the conversation today. Fantastic. Thanks. And we'll get back to that question of the role of government in this process as well. Jocelyn, to you. Yeah, sure. Um, OK. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'm Jocelyn Chu. I'm... Hopefully that's going to work. Um, I'm an architect, urban designer, and landscape architect. Can everyone hear that? I just... I'm getting a bit of feedback. Um, so I lead the Master Planning and Design Quality of Monash University's Australian campuses. Um, I lead a multidisciplinary team at Monash University comprising architects, urban designers, landscape architects, interior designers, wayfinding specialists um, and retail specialists as well. Um, I think Alison asked about a project, was that right? And so I guess um, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Monash um, Clayton Master Plan Project, which um, I've been involved in for the last eight years, both as a consultant and now as um, the client implementing it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think um, I'm sort of coming at it from a different perspective than these guys, but um, at the micro level, that... That project has enabled a range of changes that have, um, I guess, helped to start that, um, helped to build better social cohesion around our campuses. So previously, our campuses were pretty introspective. Um, they were fairly privileged. You, you know, you came there if you were working there or if you were a student there. And the last, um, in the the first few years of um, of rolling out the master plan. We've done a lot of work to remove barriers to the campus, um, to enable intuitive wayfinding, to roll out streets that invite people, so pedestrian streets that invite people onto our campuses, um, and you know created these environments that are, are welcoming and um, inclusive. Um, at the macro level, um, they've helped to create an organisational shift in the way that we approach our projects. So you might not sort of think of um, universities as sites for um, immense investment in the built environment or even as sort of, I guess, pinpoints for or, or um, pivots, I guess, for urban change or urban renewal, but they can be. Um, and Clayton, um, the Monash Clayton campus has been one of those sorts of sites. Um, it wasn't really eight years ago a sort of place that you came to to kind of hang out. Um, even as a staff member, you sort of 
you know, you, you turned up to work, you had lunch at your desk and then you went home. There weren't re really many places to sort of socialise and collaborate and work in the ways that, work or study in the ways that people do now, which is totally different from the way that people used to sort of work or, um, or study 50, just 15 or 20 years ago. So we've spent a lot of money on, on doing those sorts of things, on, on creating these environments in collaboration with researchers, in collaboration with students to ensure that they work in the way that a 21st century university should. Um, externally, the master plans have provided a really useful tool um, for us to liaise with government to, to look at bigger opportunities. So what are the bigger opportunities beyond the campus um, to, you know, deliver, I guess, sustainable, um, so economically, socially, um, environmentally sustainable outcomes um, that can help, uh, I guess, the city develop in the ways that it should be rather than just the ways that it, it is developing. So to be much more strategic about those things and some of the outcomes that we've, we've been able to um, secure through that process are improved public transport, um, you know, which I think is a challenge in a lot of projects, but we've managed to secure improved um, bus facilities not only on our sites, but also um, in nearby um, train stations on which our community relies on. So that, that has tangible benefits to the community the communities, the broader communities of which we're a part, not just our own sort of insular communities. Um, and on top of that, you know, I guess um, promoting the sort of change in services that we want to see as well. So one of the first projects we had was to fund our own bus service between Huntingdale Station and Clayton Campus. We funded that for a year and then we went back to government and said, these are the figures. They exceed every other bus service that you have in the state and that's now funded by government. Um, because we, we were able to show that that was a service that was needed, that would be utilised, and which is continuing, its patronage has continued to increase. Um, so that's just a little bit of a backdrop to some of the work we're doing. Fantastic, thank you. And James? Uh, hi, people. Uh, my name's James Tutton, and you're going to have to bear with me because I've been on holidays for three weeks in Byron Bay, and I've come back here, and I, honestly, I much prefer being on the beach, but here we go. <laughs> Um, now, I'm here uh, probably in two contexts. Um, as was touched on at the beginning, I'm um, one of the directors of Neo Metro, uh, and I'm also one of the directors and co-founders of Smiling Mind, which is a not-for-profit uh, which is primarily focused on teaching mindfulness uh, using a digital uh, platform, and that's obviously pertinent to resilience in a mental health uh, sense. Um, so I'm kind of here with two hats on. Um, in terms of Neo Metro, Neo Metro is a, a design and socially focused uh, residential developer uh, who has traditionally done medium density, so called that 20 to 60, 70 apartment projects throughout uh, Melbourne. And uh, at the moment, uh, we have uh, a project, a multi stage project in Brunswick called Jewel Station, uh, which I think is uh, a very good case study in terms of what private developers can do uh, with design and social focused real estate development and just to give you a bit of an overview of that project it's um, three buildings uh, two of them uh, being undertaken on what was government land land which was uh, owned by Victrac which is a state government body and what we've looked to do is effectively um, and this goes to the subject matter of today look to bring in community partners into the project, and that can be urban farming projects, um, it can be arts 
projects which we have worked with during the um, actual um, planning stage and then also bring back onto site once the project's completed. And then also um, looking at the uh, impacts or, or rather how one can design in a way which looks at the long-term usability of the site and that touches on things like public transport um, and really taking a view which I think too few developers take of how will this project work in the long term from the viewpoint of the people living in those apartments as opposed to the more traditional developer view of how do I get in there, how do I get my equity return and how do I get out of there. And I'm not saying um, that uh, real estate development you know, shouldn't be focused in part on making money, uh, and certainly we Neo Metro is a profitable business, but by redefining business success as being both a financial outcome as well as a positive social and community outcome, I think developers have the ability to play a really very positive role in the, um, you know, in urban landscapes and, you know, probably uh, outer urban landscapes, though our focus is on urban landscapes. Uh, the other thing which I would uh, mention in terms of Jewel Station as a case study is um, the issue of communication with community. I think a lot of, uh, and I don't mean to bag the development industry, but a lot of developers are really focused on putting in a town planning permit and having that advertised uh, in a manner which is consistent with the obligations they have in that specific um, council and then running a case to VCAT and, you know, that's really quite often the extent of the communication, like a, a, a little yellow sign uh, on, on the front of a building. Whereas um, from um, the perspective of Neo Metro, and um, it was interesting working with Kapir in this context, whereby we uh, very proactively went out to the community and uh, tried to articulate our vision for the site and get community feedback in terms of what we were doing on the site. And ultimately, what uh, I think that had the benefit of doing is really letting people know what we are doing and through that happening, people's suspicion of the developer significantly diminishes because for good or for bad, developers aren't particularly trusted. We're kind of somewhere there with divorce lawyers and, and, and used car salesmen. But if one can actually be specific in terms of a vision for the site and how you're going about it, a lot of the more, I guess, negative assumptions which community has made can be, can be you know, resolved in, in, in a far more harmonious way. And I think from a developer's perspective, that, that is a very um, sensible way for kind of pay, paving a, a positive path with community throughout not only the initial development, but for the longer tenure of that property on that site. So that's a bit um, a bit about me. You know, I, I'm you know, passionate about um, about mental health, hence my uh, involvement in Smiling Mind. But I'm also passionate about design and uh, community-focused real estate development, and, and hence my uh, involvement in, in Neo Metro over the years. Fantastic, thank you. A pretty broad range of projects and backgrounds, and I think all. Um, really speaking to uh, the value of thinking differently about some of these processes. And um, so I wanted to then 
move on to a second point, and I think you all touched on this to some extent, but really wanted to ask you about how you think about the role of good design in achieving better community outcomes. And again, I think some of this started to come up, but I really wanted to sort of focus on this more. And when I mentioned good design, I think some of that speaks to the physical outcomes of a project, but it also speaks to the process that's used to get to those physical outcomes um, and, and sort of the mix of those two aspects. So Chris, I'll start with you. Okay. Thank you. Really interesting mix of experiences, I guess, as well. And I think as we're going through the, uh, the conversation, please make mental note of questions you might want to ask. I think that's really important. Uh, two things I'd respond to that is that um, what are we designing, what are we sorry, defining as good design? You said process. And secondly, what are we defining as better community outcomes? Now, I'll take the second first. If we're thinking about better community outcomes as places or communities that are safer, more resilient, uh, more active, more sustainable, more accessible, well, have that in mind before we start putting pen on paper. Have that in mind as the definable outcome we're looking for. And that's really critical that we know what we're aiming for, right? The second thing is the design process and also the design concepts. I think when I look at design, I think there's two parts to design. There's the hardware, the things we're building, the things on the ground, the beautiful Rem Coolhouse building here. Then there's the software, which is the how do we program, how do we curate, how do we make things inside the physical forms work? And how do the two work together? So I think that those two things are really critical elements, part of that. And the means by which to do that are uh, pops we can talk about later on. But I'd, I'd, I'd ask us to think two things. And at Kapir, we often say, you need to put your pants on before we put your shoes on. Meaning it's very hard right, to, to know what we're aiming for if we don't have the strategy in place. Pants being the strategy, shoes being the activities or the tools. If you put the tools and activities first before we put the strategy on, it's really confusing, it's hard, we don't know. So same with urban design. Know what we're aiming for pants, then we can put the shoes on about the tools we're going to employ to get what we want. Can I just canter that a little bit? Um, so, I, I do agree. We, you know, you do want to aim uh, to understand what um, I guess you're aiming for in a general sense, but I don't think necessarily knowing what all the outcomes are going to be is necessary. I think good design, you know, if we're talking about social inclusion and inclusive outcomes and more resilient sort of Spaces we need to to I guess have um, forums where uh, that enable a diverse range of views to be heard and to be understood, and for that to then inform the design process. So I do think the design process is actually really important. And out of that, you know, unexpected outcomes can actually arise that are not always sort of happy, but in in sort of an, not antagonising, but in agitating. Um, a solution, they can also, you know, provide benefit. So I guess I'm seeing this from, you can't, uh, from a person who works within a really intelligent, and I say that, you know, it's a, it's a place of intelli intelligence, the university. Um, people are opinionated um, and they don't hold back their opinion. So every time we roll out a piece of public art, usually with a lot of thought and a lot of, um, you know, it's gone through a process of selection and a lot of sort of um, curation has gone into it. Inevitably, there'll be some people who are, um, 
you know, sort of offsided by that. And so to sort of understand why that is, but for them to, for, for us to also communicate to them that, well, that is actually part of the artwork to agitate or, you know, evoke an alternative response to get you sort of thinking differently about the way, um, the way you relate to the world. Um, so I don't think it's always about defining outcomes, but being open to, yeah, wanting to create benefit, but being open to what the outcomes might actually be. So a bit esoteric, but... Um, I'll just... Going back to the um, uh, pants and shoes um, analogy, and I think it's a really good one. I think one of the challenges is, and I, I, I come to this from the context of residential, private residential development, the briefs to architects are very much about the marketability of apartments and design seen in the context of market, marketability as opposed to looking at the marketability, which is a commercial issue, as well as social and community issues. And so I, I think Chris's point is very, very pertinent because the issues, um, the uh, non-commercial issues aren't actually being integrated into how architects are briefed or how town planners are briefed. Rather, it's how much height can we get and what is the right size of apartment which will meet the budget from a construction perspective, uh, which is going to get the quickest sales and the lowest construction cost and get us out of there as fast as we can, as opposed to a worldview which actually incorporates the, the non-commercial elements in, into design. And I think it's, it's crucial in terms of actually, you know, redefining how architects are uh, briefed that we think about a broader set of issues in terms of what quality design and what quality real estate development is otherwise we're going to have um, you know a, a bit of a problem on our hand as this on our hands as this city grows which it will um, yeah just thinking about this process side of it and, and what you're just saying I, I, there are some really interesting trends around in terms of new models of development which aren't um, all kind of developer profit driven but which are more um, focused around um, communities take sort of empowering themselves to uh, deliver development. So I'm thinking of things like the Nightingale model here in Melbourne. There are um, examples around the world. I, I think in Germany, it's called kind of Bau, Bau group and sort of building group. It's a very kind of long-standing tradition of communities um, identifying what their vision is for housing or local neighborhoods and architects and designers very much becoming... Uh, the people who who listen to them uh, and who take on board that that vision and help to sort of facilitate and and manage and maybe even invest finance um, that develop development model so it 's a different kind of role for uh, the the architect a different kind of process and briefing briefing process and, and it 's a much more collaborative model and the outcomes are very varied you know in terms of what communities want they 're different some of them have uh, great diversity in terms of age and mix. Um, the, the, the desire for environmental sustainability is usually very strong and they're, they're usually very willing to sort of experiment with um, new technologies and innovative systems because they can evaluate these things in terms of um, the quality they get um, versus you know, the, the money that's invested in, the, in it. So it's a different kind of... Um, value um, appraisal and, and, and sort of financial model, which is very exciting. So I think that, that whole world is, is opening up and that's probably we can talk a bit more about that. But I think in terms of um, the physical outcomes 
uh, none of this is particularly new in the sense we, we, we sort of know what things are good for our communities and we know what, what's good for social cohesion in our cities. And I think it's about um, delivering uh, a sort of human scale to our developments so that people have you know, good quality private space. They have uh, sort of semi, there's gradations of space from sort of private to semi-private, to the, the local streets, the local amenities. Uh, there are facilities for communities to play sport, um, have functions such as this, uh, and engage with one another. And, and I think uh, those are the kind of successful ingredients. Um, it's not new, it's not rocket science, but those things are good urban design, and, and we can aim to deliver those as part of this sort of res approach to resilience and this strategy. I mean, I, I'm lucky, I think of this, of, I'm lucky enough to live in Richmond, I'm really enjoying living in Richmond and enjoying the Tigers and all the excitement that's going on. I'm now a Tigers fan, I've got a 100% record for my first, my first year supporting them. Um, but it, what, what really excited me was uh, in the newspaper, you, all the stories about people reminiscing about Richmond and what it used to be like in Richmond, and people passionate about Richmond because of the community that it, it, it was, and, and still is in many ways. Um, but the challenge is, and I want to raise it, is um, the, the big stress that's, that's now happening is housing affordability. And really, um, if you look at the figures, I think it's like 60% is rented accommodation in, in Richmond. I just checked yesterday, so I was curious on, on domain. Um, and 20% own their own homes, and 20% are buying, whatever that means. Um, so people are no longer living that kind of geocentric life that they used to live. It, 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 people are much more disconnected um, to their local surrounds. I'm lucky enough that I'm in that age bracket where I've got kids at primary school, and it's a really wonderful community. I go to the school, I cycle around, take them to sport. I'm, I meet tons of people, and I love it. Um, but, but I think... Housing affordability is um, something that's really challenging the ability to make our communities work, and I just wanted to raise that. Thank you. I think that's a really critical issue that cuts across um, a number of challenges that we, we think about, certainly from that resilience perspective, and um, how do we set up our communities of all types and in all parts of the city to be successful. Um, I wanted to move on to think about collaboration um, and all of the examples that you cited in your introductions. Um, you mentioned other partners that you've worked with, whether it be VicTrack or um, you know, public transport organizations and, and the critical role that they played in those particular projects. So more broadly, what's the role of collaboration that you see across sectors um, for achieving better social outcomes in your work? And uh, I suppose in particular, um, and probably speaking to this affordability question as well, what involvement should government have? And, uh, and what would this look like, I suppose, in the ideal world where you're building these resilient communities that um, I think we all aspire to see? Happy to turn it over to whoever wants to speak first. Um, a, a couple of very, very broad thoughts. You know, I, I think um, on the issue of housing affordability, there's without doubt no silver bullet and making housing more affordable is going to have to involve a myriad of incremental changes from a whole an, an array of um, stakeholders and I think that's going to involve um, local councils and uh, the, the planning system uh, you know it, it takes too long 
um, to get a town planning permit uh, in most municipalities in Melbourne at the moment. And you may look at that and say, well, that's not a, an issue relevant to affordability, but developers look at the world uh, through time and money, and uh, the longer it takes to actually complete a project, the, uh, that has a negative impact on the return on capital, which in turn flows through to higher cost uh, apartments, essentially. That's one element of it. Another element is the actual financing and looking at whether or not it's a Nightingale model, which is using um, equity finance and then potentially debt finance, which is not, um, for want of a better expression, mainstream, also has a very, very significant um, part in it, as do models which, you know, effectively where there's no developer, a group of people coming together and uh, developing a small apartment building themselves as owner-occupiers and therefore taking out the developer's margin. Uh, you know, a myriad of things need to come together to actually put downward pressure on affordability. And I think the reality is that the best we're going to get to is putting downward pressure on it, as opposed to actually solving what is um, what is a, a you know a massive issue. And uh, you know we see coming out you know for, uh, coming out I guess onto the streets of Melbourne, homelessness, and homelessness is not just related to housing affordability, but it is connected to it. And we're seeing a situation whereby accommodation which was for effectively utilised, private or government, by people who were in very challenging economic and social circumstances, that's now been you know, taken up by people who are effectively, for want of a better expression, further up the food chain, and you've got a group of people who are just, you know, left without. And that's, you know, a, a problem which, you know, collectively uh, we need to find a solution to. So there you go. I don't have a single solution. I don't think anyone does. Could I just a couple of additional points there to James? Um, question is collaboration and to what extent, how can it contribute? That's right. I think there's lots of levels of collaboration. There's collaboration at a client and consultant level. Um, too often consultants are brought into a, to, to a problem, solving problems at the end when there's, particularly in community relations or community engagement, there's a problem, there's an outrage, quick fix it. It becomes a communications exercise rather than building the capacity of the communities to understand the value, understand the project, understand how they can contribute. So I think there's lots of layers. In teams, there's collaboration issues between engineers, planners, designers, architects, all having their own silos about how a project should proceed. Where's the value in the project? And I see some representatives here from the building and construction sector and, and there's great examples of where people have taken an alliance approach to projects. Like, what's the, the success of the project is the ultimate and we all play our part in the success of the project. It's not civils versus planners versus environmental. So we work with the collective interest, pants and shoes, right? But there's a couple of things I would stress, and, and I think it's the role of government, and, and I know I'm running out of time, but I would stress there's a handful of things that the government should do and can do and often don't do, and I can't speak to projects, but I will speak more broadly. Um, governments often do not take tough decisions. They'll, they'll translate a decision into engagement. I can't make this decision. I want to kick it down the road. I'll... Goes, I'll do some consultations or some engagement, right? So we see that frequently across the country and internationally. 
So be genuine about why we're engaging around a project. I think that would be my first big message to government. Be brave about saying, actually, this is a communications exercise. Job's done. Project's going to go ahead. Let's talk about it that way. Rather than saying, let's have an engagement around this project, but reality is the project's done and dusted, funded. It's going to start next week, right? Let's be honest about it sometimes. So transition from understanding when engagement is real and to when communications takes over. I think government needs to lead by example. And James is, I'm not feathering James's nest, he knows his nest very well, but in terms of companies who do engagement well around their projects, support them, highlight them, you know, give them, a, give them recognition, encourage others to do the same. And I know um, many companies around the room here tonight will be doing that. And I think government needs to yeah, keep going like that. Keep doing the good work about getting in early rather than risk management around engagement and, and community building. The final thing I'd reckon, really importantly, government should do is uh, hold themselves to account. So Victorian Auditor General's Office, the Vargo, continually and they're increasingly investing in evaluating their own projects. So they've got to keep doing that. Hold themselves to account. Obmansman Auditor General reports are really important to hold big projects like level crossings to account. They hold housing projects to account. Big billion dollar spends of government need to be held to account. And I think that's something very clearly both state and local governments can do. So there's a couple of things in there. Um, I'll stop at that, shall Great. I? Thanks, Chris. Yeah, okay. David or Jocelyn? Yeah, sure. Um, I do think government needs to take a longer-term view on things. And so to really plan for the future, I kind of feel like a lot of the time, you know, the sort of goals are, are more short to medium term. And so with that sort of framework in mind and the kind of investment that you need to create real change, you, it's very hard to achieve that with very short-term sort of um, um, outlooks. Um, so I think that, that would be probably my first suggestion. The second thing would be to ensure that we've got the right sort of leadership in government. I think the City of Melbourne has done a fantastic job of transforming Melbourne over the last 30 years, being sort of raised in Melbourne and seeing it, um, seeing the CBD or the central city especially transformed into a, a place that you can visit on the weekends, it used to be dead on a weekend, and that, you know, where it is very vibrant through um, government-led initiatives like Postcode 3000 where they actually did you know, I guess encourage people to live and, and open up businesses in the city. So to provide opportunities for a range of, of businesses as well. And this goes, you know, not only to housing affordability, but also um, business, uh, you know, sort of property affordability for businesses and other things. Um, I, yeah, I do think it's a collective um, effort to sort of ensure that we, yeah, to, to create a socially cohesive, vibrant community and it does re rely on government looking at a range of initiatives at all sorts of levels, um, addressing a range of different types of stakeholders and investors to ensure that that occurs. I, I mean, I guess governments have the ability to, to draw together, um, you know, organisations, institutes, academic institutions private sector across different sectors that they have the I mean someone was telling me recently about an example um, in uh, Christchurch after the earthquake how government acted there which is quite in interesting in, in the context of this um, that they 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 drew together a kind of community well-being index um, to look at how uh, communities were performing across a range of factors to do with, with health, um, economic prosperity, prosperity, sort of 
mental well-being, um, you know, a range of different factors drawing on, I don't know how many different agencies. But it, it, was, it, it sort of enabled them to understand uh, how their community is, is doing um, and was a means of engagement with the community. And they monitored it for, I think, sort of five or six years after the, the earthquake. And it was a really good tool in terms of understanding uh, where the needs were um, in, the, in the community for community building. Um, and so they identified mental stress as one big issue, which had, had, had really increased uh, people with you know, homelessness problems, trying to resolve uh, building and property issues, that kind of thing. So it was a really helpful mechanism. So I guess government can take leadership in actually um, drawing together knowledge and understanding the, the, how we are doing um, as a resilient community, which I think is really important. Uh, and, and government can also play a really good role, I think, in uh, facilitating communities to be able to engage um, with um, with sort of master planning, planning developers, um, help help them mobilise and understand how they can um, develop their vision and input into these processes much more actively. I think is another way that government can can help with social outcomes. Great, thank you. And I have one more question before we open it up to the audience. As I mentioned, we're starting this process where we hope to be piloting different models and methods of community engagement in real ongoing uh, development projects that are, you know, we want to see hit the ground and we want to see be successful. So I suppose I would pose this last question as, you know, what advice do you have for us as we start to undergo this process? And for those in the audience in particular who are interested in these processes as well and um, really engaging communities in the design uh, development and evolution of the built environment. What should we be thinking about as practitioners as we move forward? Uh, I would come back to, first and foremost, um, the point I, I made before, and that's redefining how um, consultants and probably quite specifically architects are, are briefed so that the brief becomes, you know, incorporates the issues which we're talking about today as opposed to being um, purely commercial. And I think that's, you know, in terms of bang for the buck and creating change, that's that's key to it. And redefining success um, for real estate developers around being both uh, financial and also non-financial. And the two aren't uh, necessarily opposed. They can be very complementary. And I, I think as an industry, we need to, um, you know, support that and embrace that. I mean, I... I I agree with everything that man just said. Uh, I think I think those things are really really important. It's a, it's kind of listening to helping communities to to formulate their vision and um, listening to what they understand as being, you know, good and good change and enshrining those values within, you know, the the, the briefing for our projects and um, you know the, the the design teams are the experts on how to deliver that. But I think it's really important that those values that are enshrined in there and I think you know exploring these um, more adventurous models of development which are not all profit um, driven and which have in there you know um, I don't know how you sort of build these things in but it could be you know types of types of community space that they have in there or um, you know mix of uses I mean those things are kind of built in already but it can be more adventurous than that um, I think um, and, and I think there's there's room for um, you know, governments to, to grow in allowing these more innovative models to, to take place and, and happen.
more flexible kind of financing, this kind of stuff. A okay, um, couple of observations again. I, I think whether you're a private sector participant here today, public sector, student, whatever it might be, whether you're engaging uh, at your footy club or your faith-based organisation and you want to do something about something, um, decide, A, first, why are you engaging? What's the purpose of the engagement process? Right. Secondly... Um, understand the negotiables. What's really up for grabs in this debate we're having? Is there nothing negotiable? Well, understand that, and your participants will respect you for the fact that there's nothing to be negotiated. So you're informing them, sharing and communicating about the change that may occur at the footy club, at at your church, whatever it might be. Then design a method of engagement that is fit for purpose, not the old tools that you've used every time to suit the target audience. So, so if it's culturally and linguistically diverse communities, you get you, which are your subject group, use tools that are suitable for them. Go to them. Don't just sit that it's going to be this white person's brochure that goes out and they, why didn't they read the white person's brochure type of thing? Why didn't why ask uh, elderly citizens from Dimboola who don't have internet access to get online and contribute to the online blog? So fit for purpose is really important. So once you do it, uh, respect that you found some information about your project, then, sh- then close the loop, right? Show the people what I've heard, how it's influenced our decisions, our design, things we could consider, things we can't consider. You talked about taxation... Mr and Mrs Robinson, but reality, this project's about a small residential development in Brunswick. So thankful, but I can't deal with it on this project. So be respectful and finally learn from your mistakes. Be honest and genuine about your, your tools and your techniques. And next time you do a project, you know, try to, try to just do it a little bit better, right? And it doesn't hurt. It doesn't cost much more money, does it, James? Didn't cost... It, you got out of what, what? What did you get out of? A lot of capacity to learn about the local insights, the wisdoms that Jocelyn was talking about, the unknown knowns about the community. Oh, we didn't know. We just wanted to find out. So I'd say that there's that. The second and final comment I would make is that planning is, at its core element, a resource allocation tool by government, right? It, it allocates resources. It allocates who gets what and who doesn't. It allocates value, all right? So that's what it's doing. It's distributing value in the city, all right? So... But Ros Hansen, Professor Ros Hansen, who's a colleague of ours and many of you served well on the, uh, on the Plan Melbourne uh, panels and many of you would understand that, what that means, she would very clearly say governments don't build cities. The private sector builds cities. Yeah. Right? The government sets the tone and the flavour and generally can, you know, contribute a bit to where, go, where the cities go, but largely it's the private sector that contributes the finance, the capacity, the labour, the intelligence to building cities. So sometimes it's not a matter of getting involved, it's a matter of stepping out right, of the city building process. Wow, how do I follow up from that? <laughs> Okay, so I think the only thing I had to add was also just to identify um, who in your consultation might not have a voice. So just, I I do agree with everything that's been sort of said so far on consultation. I do agree with sort of making sure you're using the right language for your audience, but also just from my own experiences with master planning for our campuses, you know, um, I think there are particular voices that tend to contribute again and again. um, And 
you know, some voices that I just never heard because they, we're not approaching them in the right ways. So we've spent a bit of time now that we're at the point of refreshing our master plans, looking at, well, who isn't being involved? Why is that? And how do we look at different ways to get them involved so we can ensure that the um, our plans for our campuses are highly inclusive, they're diverse and that they are resilient. Um, and so two areas that we're particularly focused on at the moment and which I know that we haven't been sort of um, doing as well as we probably could being a leader in, in um, you know, a global leader in education, our Indigenous culture um, and also um, LGBTI, they're just a couple of, of them. Um, accessibility is another area that we're still working on identifying um, or, or working on identifying standards for. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think just being cognisant that um, the people that you are connecting with might not actually represent the, 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 the whole of your community and to, especially in, if you're in the business of um, city design and you're planning for the future for every, you know, um, a future in which people are tending to live more and more in urban places, ensuring that they are welcoming for all cultures and all peoples. Great. Thank you very much. I'd like to open it up to see if anyone has questions in the audience. Yes, I see a hand down here, and I'll hand over oh, that microphone. Great. I'll hand this one over to you. Hi. Um, I've worked in the public service and seen some property activity happen at reasonably close quarters. And just picking up on the idea of putting in community and environmental and social, these other um, values into briefs that go to the market. Um, I've seen that happen. Um, and then I've seen the break point or the failure point happen where proposals come back and there are not available tools or tools not being used or known about that evaluate those dimensions. So you've got a number of proposals that are apparently trying to respond to those elements and you've got a whole suite of financial stuff to evaluate with and tools and techniques and history, and much less when you're talking about what's this really going to do for the people that are going to be there. So I'm just thinking, I think it's um, a great area for government to show leadership, but if government isn't, I would ask you what can, or what can anyone do, anyone that's in this sector, whether it's sort of at the university or community level or private consultancy or government, what can they do to try and find and identify these tools and get big projects using them? Um, I, I might just respond to that in the first instance. I think your point's very valid in as much that, you know, I talk from the perspective of being a, a private residential real estate developer who has introduced um, community elements into projects but what's um, you know in a perfect world uh, in identifying those elements which are brought in and th that may be community partnerships or it may be looking at the construction and saying well if you put um, better sound insulation in uh, it has a flow-on effect in terms of um, mental health outcomes for people living in those apartments because of the impact of noise or uh, you lower stress uh, by putting in better lighting which um, has an impact on people's uh, fears at night time and so forth. Now uh, in an ideal world we would understand in a I guess very objective sense the impact of be it 
design changes or community partnerships and we would approach things such that we got the biggest bang for our buck. Uh, at the moment, I don't think that's the case. We're operating um, to... Uh, quote a, a, a famous Australian film, a bit more with the vibe of it, uh, and and that's a dangerous thing. And and um, you know I think as a you know as a, a, a an industry we need to actually better understand the impacts of the various things which we're trying to tweak, and that in turn will create a far more objective and circular um, process, which results in better quality uh, residential and non-residential um, real estate development. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are, um, there, are, there are tools that are out there in terms of things like, if you're looking at bigger communities, things like Green Star Communities and, you know, other big tools out there which will, which will capture a general kind of baseline um, good performance. Um, there are, you know, guidelines out there aiming to improve apartment design. Um, they've admittedly been kind of watered down a, a bit, I think. Um, so there are some basic um, tools and, and methods out there of enshrining um, better environmental standards, um, better social outcomes, uh, covering things like consultation. But I think at the heart of it, for me, you know, this, this debate is talking about community resilience. And I think, I think that there really needs to be um, better processes uh, for engaging the community and getting their participation in development. I think if, if you can get... Um, communities to be involved and to feel that they have ownership and they, they have a pride in, the, in that development in the future, then that's really kind of half the battle won in terms of this debate about community resilience. So, I mean, it's not really my thing, and, and maybe, Chris, you've got some ideas on that, how you can enshrine um, some of those practices um, better than they are at the moment in, in, in current process. I mean, in short, I guess if your key selection criteria comparing between three projects that come across your desk. You've got to put a report up to the minister to the, through the procurement process. Minister will be looking at, you know, the KPIs of the project. If you can squeeze into that uh, some element of community engagement or evidence, uh, proof of uh, pre-project engagement, that might be something that could assist. Yes, there are the technical tools. Uh, there's no magic bullet for any of this, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, the art of the ministerial briefing is something that you're very aware of, I'm sure. Uh, and there are so many clients inside that government, right? There's the project manager, there's the executive director, then there's the min office minders, then there might be the minister, him or herself. So you've got a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of navigation to do to get your, your favourite project through. Oh, look, there's no, no silver bullet. I would just add that um, where there's been a huge amount of progress is in regard to ESD uh, and the, the, the metrics um, are, are not nearly as clear when you move to uh, community issues which aren't ESD focused and that's you know, an area which I think we need to move to. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a way of a pre-qualifying uh, developers as well. Sometimes developers have got a good track record, they've got bona fides in other areas, if they've participated in industry, if they're a B corporation, all sorts of things that are internationally recognised, well that may just give them a little bit of a 5% weighting in the pre-qualification as a, as a developer. Something along those lines. Or in terms of town planning. I mean, it, it's interesting if you put in a... I mean, Neo Metro is a B Corp, which is a US certification around, um, you know, I'm going to say it is to good business what, um, you know, 
organic certification is to an organic farmer, if, if you know, in a you know broad sense. But that's not necessarily formally considered when one puts in a town planning application, and, and that's a natural way for government to have some in, input and control over that. I'm not really sure I understood where the question was sort of coming from, I have to say. Would you be able to sort of rephrase it? Um, just, just briefly, it's just about decision-making tools. What makes these um, less quantifiable elements that we're talking about, community value in all its dimensions, more clearly quantifiable so they're comparable, or more quite clearly comparable? Yeah, okay. Um, so I guess tools and processes absolutely assist, and some of the ones that do, ex it, do assist, and some of the ones that do exist that we utilise are crime prevention through environmental design principles. So, you know, there are some out there that already um, help with the planning of sort of public spaces and the areas around developments. Um, and also, you, you've, we do have groups like the Victorian Design Review Panel um, and, and a lot of other sort of, um, like Monash has its own design review panel as well, where we do establish experts to, or, or set, establish a group of experts to um, assess the, um, I guess, you know, the, how well does this respond to all of the ambitions that we want to sort of deliver? And that's where you might include, you know, particular experts like um, people in the, the space of um, um, health prevention and in, and in the area of um, health treatment, for instance, so that you are getting a very sort of, um, I, you know, I guess... Um, diverse perspective, like a knowledgeable, diverse perspective on those things. I don't know. I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> Okay, so, um, Melbourne's... No, we can't. Good day. Um, okay, so, uh, Melbourne's probably about to... I guess, quadruple in size in the next 20, 30 years. Um, if we look at like areas like Fishman's Bend and Arden Macaulay. Um, so I guess my question is, how do you engage with a community that's not quite there? I, I don't know. You, you, you've, I think one needs to work out... Well, I'd say two things. Uh, work out where they're likely to be coming from uh, is, is one factor, and that's actually quite tricky because the people who are buying those apartments are, are, aren't that likely to be the people who are living in them, so that's one factor. And then I, I think to a certain extent we need to extrapolate from experiences elsewhere within Melbourne as to what works and what doesn't work, and, and they're two kind of key things which um, come, come to mind um, for me. <laughs> yeah, really good question and great answer. The only additional piece of information I'd say, um, speak to industry who's done it before, um, who've had communities move into their uh, communities, if you like, from, from other areas. So extrapolation, yes, but seek the wisdom of others in, in, that, in, that, um, in that debate. There'll be a whole of government insights. There'll be clearly other projects you've worked on that may shed some, shed some light and call to others. If form virtual communities of interest online. Are you interested in moving your fisherman's bend? If so, what would you like there to be? What are you worried about? What are the things you dream about? What would you like the kids to do when you first back the Subaru up in the underground car park? I mean, start a conversation, right? 
I guess the other thing is when you engage with them, how do you push them to the edge of comfortability? Because obviously, I like there's big changes that are going to be happening in the world, yeah. um, and it's and people are scared of them. So how do you get them to a place of, move a community to a place of being uncomfortable in a comfortable way? Uh, there's no shortage of people being uncomfortable. I don't think there's any problem with that. <laughs> people are worried. You, you, you've just touched on a really the core element of why people get engaged. Change, right? Uh, it's change on my street. It's change in my neighbourhood. It's change uh, in my life. Um, all you've got to do is scratch the surface of anyone who turns up to a public meeting or to a focus group or to whatever. Your project or your, your investment or whatever it is is probably the tip of the iceberg of the changes that are occurring in their life. And so you've got to be very respectful of how they've walked into that house, how they've walked into that conversation. So walking in the shoes of others is a really important respect tool that you can have when you're designing an engagement. The old dear who turns up, Moira turns up at your engagement when you're doing a Neo Metro thing and she says, I'm really concerned about this development. Stop and stop talking about the development and start to understand Moira a little bit. Start to understand why she's turned up, what she's stopped for and then you get a bit of an understanding of how you can engage with her at what level. Then learn about the change and just amplify that by 10,000 by 100,000 and that's the conversation we tend to need in the city about big changes like Fisherman's Bend or East West Link or level crossings. It's a conversation by conversation, human by human relationship we need to develop time, from, from some times on projects. All right? So that's really good. Uh, we could spend another day on change and how to engage around Give change. Give some time, guys. Everybody leave. Yeah, yeah. So you and I can just <laughs> tick-tack over there. Uh, we're out of time, Jocelyn, but um, do you have something quick that you'd like to add? Just yeah. really quick. So Adam McCauley is obviously in a really amazingly strategic location. It's right at the cusp of the Parkville Biomedical Precinct. Internationally, that's the biggest biomedical precinct in the world, so there's a lot of opportunity there. And they're doing a lot of work on, um, and I know this because Parkville um, campus, our Parkville campus, um, is part of that precinct. It's also ranked number two in the world after Harvard. Um, so I think liaising with those stakeholders, because they've got their own kind of ambitions, you know, that they're, they're putting down on paper as well, would be, and they've got their own ideas for the sort of broader... Um, uh, region uh, might be a good starting point because, uh, you know, th there might be some things that come out of that collectively that can help to sort of create something really special at Ar Arden Macaulay. Great. Thank you. I'd just like to say thank you again to all of the panellists today. It's been a really rich conversation. I know I'll take a lot away from it and I hope each of you will be able to as well. So a uh, round of applause for everyone. Thank you.